morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good. Goodbye. <laughs> Bells. Yeah, thanks for reading this morning. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll miss you. Thank you so much of all the years. And it, I'm correct. You served here too as pastors? No? No. Never mind. Nope. You never make up history that's not true? <laughs> I do it all the time. So not when I'm speaking at church, though. <laughs> no, no, never. So the word that comes to my mind this morning is vulnerability. I actually feel a little bit sick this morning because I want to do something that is vulnerable. And usually when I want to do something vulnerable, I don't actually want to do it physiologically. My body doesn't want to do it. So, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some art with you. Some of my own personal art that I've made, um, which is weird because I've shared it publicly with the world. You could find it on Instagram or TikTok or my, my website. It says out there. But here, for some reason, as the t clock is getting closer and closer, like, oh boy, I don't feel good. <laughs> I don't want to do this. So that's a very odd sensation. But, so it's vulnerable for me. But it's not just vulnerable to share the art. The art is actually coming from a vulnerable place. So it's coming from, uh, like, a, just a vulnerable place. This, this last year, two years, two and a half years, has, you know, whatever, been really challenging for a lot of us. Um, but halfway through the pandemic, I kind of lost my job, and it was a really, really jilting experience. And with my job as a pastor, I lost my community, and I lost my family, and I lost my security. And I'm coming to terms with the fact that I, I lost huge parts of my identity. Uh, par parts that I had kind of taken on as a pastor that Jesus never asked me to take on. And so this last year, in the safety of this beautiful little church, I have been coming to terms with that. And so I've thought, I've shared this publicly too, but I don't think I've shared it with very many people here. Faith applied to a job, my wife applied to a job in uh, Nova Scotia, and we thought we were moving. And we thought it was a sure bet that we would be moving to Nova Scotia like early September, sometime in October. And she did not get the job. We waited weeks and weeks and weeks to find out that she didn't get it we thought for sure it was like 100% slam dunk that it was going to happen. So we kind of made our peace with leaving Ontario and kind of said our goodbyes and made plans. It basically did everything but list our house. And because I thought we were leaving, I felt like I wanted to do a short series of art projects, basically around my faith. I thought I'm gonna, I wanna do some like satirical, kind of comedic, punchy, um, kind of critiques of evangelicalism and my own, my own faith. And I call it the 45-day plan. Who's an, an Office fan here? Michael Scott. You know what I'm talking about? Is anybody an Office fan? Yes, okay. Michael Scott, 45-day, 45-point plan. That's what I called it. I thought, okay, if I buy Thanksgiving, I'll, have, I'll, I'll be doing small projects that I can share, and then by Thanksgiving, we'll be out of province, and Bob's your uncle, it's over. Didn't happen. We weren't moving. But I was like, I'm going to be committed to this project anyway. I'm, I want to actually follow this through for once in my life. And this past month and a half has been really, really unexpected. And most recently, I've related to my own story that when I was a teenager and I was planning on leaving school, I'm from a big, I'm one of seven kids. I'm, from, I'm the middle child of seven kids from a very large extended family. And I knew that I needed to just get away from my family. And... Going to like Waterloo wasn't far enough or like somewhere in Ontario wasn't far enough. I needed to leave the province. 
and I needed to find my own way in the world, just me. And I was excited to do that until I actually arrived at the college in British Columbia where I went to school. And then it was like a reckoning and I just, it was, it destroyed me. And that's the only comparison I've found with this art project. It's like, I knew I needed to do this, but not until like 40 some odd days in did I realize, oh boy, this is kind of wrecking me, it's destroying me. Because I've actually discovered it's not a reflection of the evangelical church, it's, it's my own heart that I'm now reckoning with. So it's a vulnerability to share, but it's, it's out, out of vulnerability that this work comes from. And, and it may offend you, and that's okay, um, because it's different. And this is coming from a series of what I have titled My Jesus, kind of from that old hymn, is it My Jesus, I Love Thee? That one. My Jesus, comma, I leave behind. So the Jesus that I, I can't take with me anymore in my Christian walk. It's like the, the misconceptions of Jesus that um, aren't right. They're not healthy. Um, they're not good. And they've actually kind of hindered my walk with him. And they're, not, they're, they're distortions of who Jesus is. And so I, I wanted to do like a series of Jesuses that I've had in my mind that I wanted to, I want to shed. And so they're maybe a little bit weird. Uh, but I want to share a couple of them with you, and it will make, hopefully make sense by, by the end. So, Mike, if you could run Vending Machine Jesus, that would be great. That's it. <laughs> Vending Machine Jesus. So I have a Jesus that I drew... And he's like in a loincloth, he's mostly naked as my template. I printed him 50 times and then I took that Jesus and I made modifications to that same so there's like consistency and pattern. So the vending machine Jesus is like, you can read into it how you want, but basically this idea that you know you put in cheap, cheap coin for cheap treats whenever you want, like Jesus is just there for your disposal, your cons consumption. Nothing really nourishing, nothing really lasting, but he'll give you a sweet treat if you, if you push the right buttons and and give him cheap coin. And then you move on, right? He's just, he's convenience. Um, so that's, that was the first one I did. It's like, okay, that's fun. Um, and, then I, and then I kept going. And so if you want to queue up Bob Ross. Yeah. I think everybody needs a friend. <laughs> and I could paint the kind of world that I wanted. It was clean, it was sparkling, shiny, beautiful, no pollution. Except everybody was happy in this world. <laughs> Beat the devil out of it. And from all of us here, I'd like to wish you happy painting. And God bless, my friend. Okay, so I've, I've been watching Bob Ross since I was a kid. I think we, we had cable for a couple years when I was a kid. And, and we'd see the repeats of Bob Ross. And my brother Josh and I would watch him and kind of fell in love with how weird Bob Ross is. I don't know if there's any Bob Ross fans here, but like I grew up, I loathe his paintings. I hate his painting style, like, but the, but the man is really interesting. And so this is kind of Bob Ross, Jesus idea of like the placid, nice Jesus. He's going to paint you a beautiful world that has no pain and no suffering. And, and it's like mistakes can be altered. They have little trees that you just have this nice, placid, paint-by-number kind of world is like, well, that's not Christian faith. That's not Jesus. I want to leave Bob Ross Jesus behind. 
And we'll do one more, and this is actually the one that probably is the most poignant to me and the most challenging for me to actually kind of nail down where I'm getting at and the most vulnerable, the one I actually don't want to share. But Mike, let's, let's run uh, Talent Agent Jesus. You don't know what it's like to be me out here for you. Help me. Help, help me help you. Help me help you. Help me help you. Show me the money! Show me the money! So, I've act- this is Jerry Maguire. I've actually never seen Jerry Maguire, but so but I do love Tom Cruise. But basically the idea that Jesus is my agent, that he works for me, and I've kind of, I don't know where this idea came from or how it's melded into my life, but that somehow Jesus is out there, he's, he's out there looking for spots for me to fit in. And he's going to find me the contracts, he's going to find me opportunities, and he's going he's gonna to make a way for me because I'm the talent and he's my agent. And there's been a reckoning that, you know, that's actually not Jesus. You know, we, he doesn't work for me. I'm invited into his story. And so he's not my sports agent. He's not out there trying to land me deals. He's, he's actually inviting me into a whole other world where I can work for him. So there's more, but I won't show you more. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm going to keep doing more. I think I will, um, but we'll see. But it reminds me, so my vulnerability and sharing from a place of vulnerability reminds me of Mark. Actually, I was challenged by Mark, I think. Um, I love the Gospel of Mark, as I've shared, and we've been going through it slowly this past couple, uh, several months. Not, Not any way but to see it as a story. And Mark's story, I think, is super, super compelling. And this particular story is, gives, I think, a whole new insight into Mark, his life, the work of Jesus, and kind of uh, vulnerability. And it actually is it's kind of coming to the point of Jesus' crucifixion. And I was actually trying to have this conversation with my dad over Thanksgiving, and I was trying to, th- I was trying to surmise, like, what is the actual climactic event of Mark's gospel? Is it actually the crucifixion itself? Or is it a little bit before the crucifixion? And I'll let you ponder on that. But I want to read first, because Mark tells us really, 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 really well. There's no reason for me not to just read it. This is coming from after the, the Last Supper, when the, you know, Jesus has kind of broken the bread. They've had the bread and the wine. This is my body. This is my blood. And it's like Jesus says, you know, I, something bad's going to happen. He gives them that template. You know, you're going to be scattered. Your world is going to be destroyed. But don't worry. I'll be there after. I'll pick you, I'll pick you up. I'll find you later. We'll, we'll put together the pieces. And the disciples are like, no, no, no. That's not going to happen. And Peter's like, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, actually, you're going to betray me three times before this day's even over. No, that can't be. Well, when that scene closes up and they close the door in that upper room and they start walking towards Gethsemane, they actually leave Jerusalem now, some people think that you kind of, they kind of left, I'm not sure what end of the city, but like, I think like the, the, the western end of the city, and they actually walked down the Kidron Valley towards where the Garden of Gethsemane would have been. It would have been like an olive garden thing with ancient trees. 
even back then. It was a favorite spot for Jesus to go. But that walk is really fascinating because some of those, the, the cliff edges on the edge of that city, or the edge of Jerusalem, there's actually tombs kind of carved into that rock. And so kind of Jesus is actually passing by what may or could have been his own tomb. We don't know. But it's really fascinating. And then when they get there, Mark tells us, in chapter 14, Jesus told his disciples, sit here while I pray. Then he took Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, with him. He plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. This is the message. This is Eugene Peterson using very colorful language. There's lots of different translations to basically describe that Jesus is in a state of dread. He is in, like, painful dread. He's not just afraid. He's not just anxious. It's like an overwhelming sense of dread has come over him, death kind of dread. He told them with this, in this dreadful state, I feel bad enough right now to die. Stay here. Keep vigil with me. Going a little ahead, he fell to the ground and prayed for a way out. Papa, Father, you can. Can't you? Get me out of this. Take this cup away from me. But please, not what I want. What do you want? Mark is a brilliant storyteller. And Mark brings us to the point of like the apex of Jesus' humanity. He's left the upper room. He's had his meal with his disciples. They are completely unaware of what's going on. They can sense tension for sure and something's off kilter. But at this point, they've probably never seen Jesus like this. Dread, agony. I feel like I'm going to die. Physically, Jesus says. He falls to the ground and he, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is begging his father, please, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, please let this pass through me. But he says, now what I want, of course, what do you want, God? This term, Papa, Father, Abba, Father, is, is actually a very unique term. And it, it's, it, Jewish scholars would say, and kind of New Testament scholars, it's very rare for, for anyone to talk like that. Like Jesus, like in, in Judaism, you wouldn't say Abba, Father. It didn't probably mean Daddy, the way a lot of pre preachers would say, and it doesn't necessarily mean just Father. You could use it in other contexts, but it was very, very personal. It's a very personal plea that Jesus is, is demonstrating, his very, very close relationship with God. But then he came back and he found them, the disciples, sound asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, you went to sleep on me? Can't you stick it out with me a single hour? Stay alert, be in prayer, so you don't enter the danger zone without even knowing it. Don't be naive. Part of you is eager, ready for anything in God, but another part of you is lazy as an old dog sleeping by the fire. Then he went back and prayed the same prayer. The same prayer he just prayed. A second time asking for, Jesus, for God to pass this over him, but not my will, God, your will. Then he comes back, returning again, he found them sound asleep. 
They simply couldn't keep their eyes open. And they didn't have a plausible excuse. He came back a third time and said, Are you going to sleep all night? Three times his disciples fell asleep on him. Three times. You can hardly blame them. It's probably like three in the morning. They're exhausted. And he comes back the third time. He says, you're going to sleep on me all night? Nope. You've slept long enough. Time's up. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed in the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's get going. My betrayer has arrived. Now this scene, this ancient garden grove, you know, there's lots of movies and shows that portray this. But I, and I, I do imagine like a mist kind of coming off the ground and it's dark and it's, and it's misty and there's not a lot of light. But maybe there's some flickers, some orange glow through the mist as, as torches are approaching. And maybe there's a low murmur. But Jesus knows his, they've come for him. And then the next thing that happens is through this misty darkness, Judas, who'd left that night at the Last Supper, comes to find Jesus. He knows that Jesus is here. This is one of Jesus' favorite spots. He knows Jesus is here, and he comes through that mistiness. And it would have been odd if you were a disciple, one of the, one of the 12, watching Judas. Like, when did you even leave, Judas? Like, why are, like, what are you doing? Why are you on that angle or that side of the garden as opposed to over here with us? And it's probably a little bit of disbelief. And Judas walks towards Jesus. And he calls him rabbi. And he kisses him on the cheek. Signs of love, admiration, closeness, hospitality. He is showing Jesus as closely as he could the intimacy that they have shared for these, for these many years. And then behind Judas, Mark says, is a crowd of people with clubs and swords. Now, Mark is oddly descriptively nondescriptive because he says crowd, and Mark uses the word crowd a lot. And whenever you see the word crowd in Mark, you can usually assume it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to be a part of the crowd in Mark's story because it usually means there's some sort of underlying anxiety kind of surging through that crowd. I don't think he uses it accidentally. That there's like a, a, a it, it, like a, the, the crowd is doing something that the story doesn't call for. It's dark. It's in the middle of the night. They're out of the city. There's 12, 13 guys. Why the clubs? Why the swords? Why the secrecy? And Jesus says that very thing. What are you doing coming at me with clubs and swords as if I'm a revolutionist? I've sat in the temple every day preaching my message. I, I preach with integrity. You know exactly what I'm about. Why the secrecy? Why the darkness? Why the numbers? Because probably in this crowd is the temple guard, the Jewish police, and probably Roman soldiers. Mark doesn't tell us that, but we can infer. And so if you can imagine your disciple, Judas has come and kissed your master on the cheek. 
after this mysterious disappearance, and along him comes this crowd of people. Imagine how you would feel. Well, Peter, being Peter, we actually don't know that it's Peter. This is a slip-up on my part, because Mark doesn't tell us. One of the people in that crowd, and Jesus' side, picks up his sword and just goes at one of the people, draws his sword and swipes down, probably aiming to kill. He just, he just acts this person and lops off one of the, the, the high priest's guard's ear. Now, Mark is descriptively nondescriptive. He doesn't tell us who it is. He doesn't even name, it as a, name this person as a disciple. It's other, other gospels, Luke and Matthew and John, that kind of fill in the rest of the story that we can surmise is actually probably Peter. And, and Jesus actually heals this guy. And the story moves on, but Mark doesn't tell us that. But then it kind of quells down, and then something happens. Jesus says, what is this coming at me with swords and clubs as if I were a dangerous criminal? Day after day I've been sitting in the temple teaching, and you never so much lifted a hand against me. What you, in fact, have done is confirm the prophetic writings. It, it doesn't fit. It doesn't match the story. It doesn't, the, the crowd, the anger, the anxiety, the violence, that they start beating on Jesus, and they probably tie him up and rough him up with their, their clubs and their fists. It doesn't match. The story, the, the wave of the anxiety at this point is overwhelming. It is about to break. And then Mark tells us, at this point, all the disciples cut and ran. They all took off. All of them. John, James, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Peter, they run. They see what's happening, and in a moment, I can only imagine that their worldview is shattered to bits. Jesus had lost control of the narrative, they thought. The Messiah they had followed around for three years, who had raised the dead and walked across water and transfigured on the mountain and, and was always in control and always had like some sort of way to maneuver the crowd and always had something to say, was now tied up, beat up, and about to be taken away for trial and execution. And the moment for them is so overwhelming, this crack of their worldview just shatters. They know nothing else but to run and leave their Messiah entirely alone. This is where Mark, I think, is my favorite. He goes on. A young man was following along. All he had on was a bedsheet. Some of the men grabbed him, but he got away, running off naked leaving them holding the sheet. One scholar says that's the weirdest passage in the Gospels. 
I probably agree. In this scene, all that stuff happening, all this Judas and the, the, the guards and the Roman soldiers and the people and the violence and the, the anxiety and the snapping of the moment and the fleeing, there's someone else there in a bedsheet. A young man, a young guy, in the middle of a garden, well outside of the city. What on earth is that kid doing out there? And in that kerfluffle, in that like, with, you know, whenever you see like a, a fight or something happening, this is the moment of tension, then boom, it breaks and woof, there's a rush in and they're, they're, like they're, they're surging, they're grabbing, they're clutching. Jesus is at the center, he's being punched and grabbed and kicked and thrown. And someone grabs this young guy. The disciples are gone. They've, they've run away. This guy's grabbed too, and he wiggles out of his bedsheet, and he runs off naked through the garden. Who is that guy? What's he doing there? Some people, this is like a list of, well, this is who this could be. Well, it's one of the disciples. It's one of this prisoners a bystander, whatever. It could be this person. It could be that person. It could be Lazarus. None of these really make sense. I think it's Mark. It's Mark himself. John Mark. Some people think that actually Jesus had his upper room meal, his last supper, in Mark's mother's house, Mary. And she was a wealthy woman who lived in Jerusalem. And linens were actually wealthy, a wealthy person's garment. And so there's a, a really, really good, plausible explanation that, that Mark, John Mark, was present in the upper room at the Last Supper, not having spent time with Jesus in Galilee, not really knowing Jesus very well, but having witnessed and watched enough of this man talk that in the middle of the night, he was compelled to follow a bunch of strange men out of his home, down, down the valley, probably from a distance, in the middle of the night, with only a bedsheet over him. No clothes, no sandals. And he watches this thing happen. And then when it turns ugly, naturally, the young man runs away. And I think it's Mark. And it's brilliant writing. It is so compelling of a story. Because this is actually not the first time Mark has left Jesus behind. If we go back to the beginning when we first started getting into the book of Mark, when Mark was with, John Mark was with Paul and Barnabas, what did Mark do just a couple weeks into their missionary trip? Who remembers? He left. He cracked. He couldn't handle it. He, he somehow he has a conversion experience and so he goes on the missionary trip with Paul and Barnabas, his buddy. And, they, and this is Paul's first missionary trip. And they're down on the island. And, they, and I think it's the island of Crete. And when they, they, it's just too hard for Mark. He cracks. 
And he, he says, I can't do this. I'm not cut out for this. I'm not made for this. I want off this trip. And so they go up to the next port, I think in Arapaya or something like that. And he gets a boat and he sails home. Back to Jerusalem. And Paul's furious. And Paul and Barnabas, this is the point of why Paul and Barnabas split up. Because Barnabas is defending John Mark. And Paul says, I'm not taking a loser defector with me on another trip. He can't, you can't trust this guy. He cracks, he breaks, he's weak. So Barnabas says, you're going to go with Mark? Fine. I need a new partner. Silas is my man. And Barnabas fades from view from the story of Acts. And we never really hear from John Mark again in the story of Acts. Except sometime later, probably within a couple of years, something happens to Mark. After defecting on his missionary trip, he comes back home. He picks up his quill and he finds a fresh scroll and he writes the gospel of Mark. And very likely, it's the first formal telling of the life of Jesus. And it is compelling, and it is rich, and it is like full of imagination and wonder and beauty. And then Mark has the vulnerability to write himself right in the very apex of Jesus' personal betrayal that not only all of his buddies and his close friend betrays him and Peter and all these guys scatter and flee. No, no, no. I was there too. And I left. And I ran naked in the garden. And Mark is a brilliant storyteller. And you cannot read that story. And I, I can't not think about the very, very, very first story when Adam and Eve are running naked through the garden, running from God full of their own shame. And it is beautiful. Because if the story ended there, if Jesus dies and it's over, and he's just another revolutionary who dies on the cross, we'd never hear from him again. Maybe a footnote in some master's level history paper. But Jesus of Nathers would just fade from view. But he didn't stay dead. He came back to life. He, was, he appeared to his disciples. He offers his spirit to the world so that people like Mark would have an opportunity to, to be vulnerable. And what Mark, I think, is actually asking us to do through his brilliant storytelling and his own vulnerability, he's actually inviting all of us to come to that very scene where all of our expectations of Jesus are exposed. That we all get to see Jesus with, with eyes wide open, like actual, true vulnerability. That Peter wants some glorious king and Mar John and James, they think they're going to sit at his throne and Judas is probably really disappointed that Jesus is not a club and sword revolutionist. And that's why he's selling him out. That they wanted substantial change. They thought they were a part of something really, really great. 
but they couldn't see what Jesus was actually doing. And all of their expectations, full face, front, face to face, eye to eye with Jesus, was exposed. And Mark is bringing us right to that very, very, very human moment in his gospel. And if we have the courage, and it is not easy to do, we can actually just sit there, wait there, watch, listen, talk to Jesus, hear what he has to say back to us. And we have an opportunity because he was the one to carry that suffering. It wasn't on us. It wasn't on the disciples to do this job. This is what Jesus only could do. He gives us opportunity to lay it down at his feet. Right then and there. We don't have to go to the cross. We don't have to pay heinously for our sin and our hubris. Jesus has already given us a way, and all we have to do is be vulnerable with him in that moment. And for that, I, I thank Mark, and I thank God for Mark, because it is, it's just a beautiful story. And that's my hope and my, my encouragement for you today, everywhere, that in your own moments, in your own time, if you reread that story, and you just, put, just let, let Mark take you through it, and let the Spirit illuminate and I pray that you come face to face with Jesus and you have dialogue with him. And you're able to lay down your expectations of him and embrace him for who he actually is. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much that you love, uh, your love is irrational. That your love is actually, uh, none of us could earn your love, certainly I couldn't. That time and time again, time and time again, I found myself recycling this narrative of, of running from you because you've somehow failed me in my, own, in my own mind. And yet you continually invite me back. Jesus, I thank you that your love transcends my stupidity. I thank you that your love transcends my hubris. Jesus, I thank you that you give us opportunity through your spirit to be vulnerable with you. And you give us opportunity time and time again to see you face to face. That we could be known by you and we could know you as you prayed for your disciples that you would be in us and we would be in you just as you are in the Father and the Father is in you. And Jesus, I thank you that Mark's story didn't, it wasn't simple and easy without pain and suffering. But it came to a beautiful point where he had the courage to share and was prompted by you to share this, your story with the world. And a story that has, has just changed history. And so I thank you for that. And I thank you for each and every one here that we have our own stories, our own situations, our own uh, gardens where we're planted, our own people and characters that we interact with. And Jesus, I pray that our vulnerability as followers of you would actually just be a natural light to the world that we wouldn't need to be clever or, or uh, 
shifty or, or anything but ourselves because we are actually loved by you and our, and our witness comes from that love. And so I pray that we'd find that time in those moments uh, today, tomorrow, this week, that we reflect on you and our relationship with you. I thank you for these things. In your name we pray. Amen.